Ephesians 2.10. Romans 8.29, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, God's created good works in advance for us to do. We've been looking at those two truths. And for us as a church, they're essential to who we are. They're really the bedrock of who we are. And from my perspective, uh, because God has said, this is what I intend to do, they should be the bedrock for everybody. Those, those are, God is saying, these are my purposes. I want people to look as much like Jesus as possible. And I want people to do these things that I've created in advance for them to do. Another way of translating that is these good works for us to walk in. And so we're committed to going after those things. And what we've been looking at for the month of January is David as an example of someone who did that. So we've been looking at the life of David as a guy who was a man after God's own heart, who was being conformed into the image of Jesus, even though he was before the time of Christ, and a guy who um, was walking in the things that God had for him, which was to be the shepherd of the nation of Israel. Last week, we looked at the idea of suffering, and we said, Suffering is one of the giants that comes into our life that will derail us. It will keep us from pursuing both of those things because it, will shut down our, it can shut down our relationship with God. If we haven't thought about how, we're gonna, how we understand suffering, if we don't have any framework for dealing with suffering, it's going to come, and when it does, it's going to throw us into a ditch. So I, I shared last week my perspective, which I said you can either agree with or disagree with, but if you disagree with it, you need to come up with your own. Um, for me, I tie suffering to sin. And I say, I, God does not cause suffering. He doesn't allow suffering. He creates a possibility for suffering because he gave people freedom to choose. Sin is the abuse of that freedom, and I, I can tie suffering back into sin. It's either my sin, somebody else's sin, sin that's been injected into creation, or corruption, excuse me, that's been injected into creation from Adam and Eve's sin, or demonic activity, which you can tie back to the sin of the devil. So for me, that's the connection. And so when I experience suffering, I don't see it as a good thing. I see it as something that God is opposed to. He can absolutely redeem. He can use. He brings beauty from ashes. He works all things for good. Yes, to all of those things. But I don't see suffering in itself as a good. You might come from a different perspective, and there is another perspective that's wonderful. You just need to have nailed that down in your heart because suffering is going to come, and if you don't know how you're going to deal with it, it will throw you for a loop. You're going to wind up in a pit somewhere, for some people, for a long time, and it will shut you down from engaging God, which will then keep you from doing the things God has created you to do and becoming the person God has created you to be. So in keeping with that upbeat, happy theme, we're going to look at this what I would consider that, that it's a twin brother of suffering. It's another obstacle that you can count on that's going to come. If we haven't figured out how we're going to deal with it in advance when it comes, it's going to shut us down. So this is 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. After the king, the king is David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? The implied answer there is no. I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have, excuse me, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I took you from the pasture and from the flock, from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the nations of the greatest men of the earth. Excuse me, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father, and he'll be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love I will, never, will never be taken from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So you've got suffering over here. These things are cousins. They're brothers. and They're mingled together. But I can make a distinction. I'm going to try to do that this morning. You've got suffering. That's what we talked about last week. And then over here, uh, this morning I want to focus on disappointment, particularly disappointment at God when he says no. That's, this story here is God saying no to David. If you go along with the Lord, he is going to say no to you. And he's probably going to say no to you more than once. And if you haven't thought about it, if you don't have a context or a framework for dealing with God saying no, it will shut you down. You're going to get angry, you're going to get confused, you're going to get frustrated. Ultimately, to me, all of that settles into disappointment. And if you don't deal well with that disappointment, it will ultimately lead you into sin. If you don't deal with disappointment, it's like you're going to carry offense. It's a backpack. A backpack full of hurt and offense that you're carrying towards God that over time will choke off your relationship with him. It will keep you from becoming the man or woman that God wants you to be and from doing the things God has created in advance for you to do. So we have to figure out, it's, he is going to say no to you. And, it, and we have got to come up with a way of dealing with the no and then the fallout of that or that disappointment will kill us. Three different ways we can look at this, or, or, or three different perspectives. The first is Nathan. So Nathan is a prophet, one of the top two or three most trusted advisors of David. David comes to him and says, you know what? I don't think it's right that I've got this palace and the ark is in a tent. Remember, at this point, the ark of the covenant was the tangible expression of God's presence. Wherever the ark is, God is. Back in Exodus, God had laid out this elaborate design for the tabernacle. It's basically a big tent. It was portable. And David is saying, now I have a permanent place as the king. You've, you've created a permanent place for your people here in the nation of Israel. As all those wars that David fought in um, leading up to this chapter are to establish this uh, territory for Israel. So you've got a permanent place for the people of Israel, a permanent place for the king, a temporary place for God. Doesn't make sense. So let's build a permanent place for God. Good desire, noble, righteous. So David had, there's a need there for the temple. David has a desire. He says in, I think it's in Second Chronicles 22, I said it in my heart, I intended in my heart, it was in my heart to build the temple for the Lord. He had the time. You see here there's peace on all sides. Part of his job as the shepherd of Israel, part, one of the things a shepherd does is protect the flock. 
So he had to fight these wars to create space for the people of Israel to flourish. He'd done that. God had given him rest. So he's got time. He's got desire. There's a need. Resources. This is um, uh, 1 Chronicles 22. David says, I've taken great pains, great pains, to provide for the temple of the Lord. About 3,750 tons of gold. This is what David has given. 37,500 tons of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed, and wood and stone as well. So David has put massive, he has massive resources that he is willing to commit to this project. Ultimately, he does, even though he's not the one to build it. So you've got a guy. So you're Nathan. You're the prophet. The king comes to you and says, you know what? This isn't right, that I've got a, this great palace. God's living in a tent. Need? Check. D- David has the time? Check. He has the desire? Check. He has the resources? Check. So wisdom says then build the temple, right? There's no reason not to, multiple reasons to. So he says to him, do whatever's in your heart, David. There's no indication in the Bible that Nathan was arrogant, that he was presumptuous, that he missed it. There's no indication in the Bible that David had any selfish motives for doing this. This was a desire of his heart. It was a righteous desire from everything that we can tell. God ultimately fulfills it through his son, Solomon. So you've got this wisdom that says, build it. Nathan goes to sleep. He has a dream. The dream is very clear. David is not the guy. So Nathan goes back to David the next day. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you told your boss something on Monday and you've got to tell him the opposite thing on Tuesday. Not a lot of fun, especially if your boss can throw you in jail or cut off your head, which could have happened. So I don't know what Nathan's emotional state is when he goes back, if he's hang dog or if he's trembling or if he's so convinced of this dream, whatever. So he goes and it says he tells David the whole thing. Revelation trumps wisdom every time. Wisdom, all of the signs are pointing yes, yes, yes. And then God whispers no. And that wins every time. Wisdom most of the time will get you in the direction you need to go, but there will be times in your life, count on it, Everything will say yes. Your work history will say yes. Your resume says yes. Your friend says yes. The doors are opening yes. The opportunities are saying yes. The timing is saying yes. Your finances are saying yes. And God is going to say no. And you have to be willing to listen for the no. And then you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. Revelation trumps wisdom every time. The thing I want you to hang on to with that also is it was clear. Again, God's not hiding the cookies, wondering if you can find them. He wants you to know the things that he has for you. This dream could only be interpreted one way. David, don't build the temple. There's no other way to read into that. When he tells you no, he will tell you no. You Most likely... You don't have, I don't know any of you that have a personal prophet, so that's probably not going to happen for you that someone's going to come and say, hey, I had a dream, and this is it. A lot of times the way we hear no is we run into a tree, but it's still clear because we've run into a tree. He'll make it clear. You've got to give him a shot to say no. Even if everything in you is pointing towards yes. You've got the time, you see a need, side note, just because there's a need doesn't mean you're the guy or the woman to fill it. Some of you have this thing in you, and it's compassion overdrive. And you need to dial back. 
Just because there's a hole doesn't mean your deal is to fill the hole. You need to wait until God says yes. So everything is saying yes. You've got the resources. You've got the time. You see the need. You have the desire. We're huge here on what has God put in your heart. Go for it. Well, God had put building a temple in David's heart, and he says, no, don't. So got to be willing for that. Revelation trumps wisdom every time. Then you've got David. Imagine you're David, something that's been in your heart for a long time. You've prayed. You probably feel like this is a pure desire. There's no indication that it's not. David was a psalmist. He wrote most of the psalms. His, the stuff that he wrote is the worship guide for the service in the temple. So if anybody was going to build the thing, you'd think it would have been him. This was in his heart. There's no indication, again, that it was not a righteous or a godly desire. So you finally go to Nathan and you say, I think we ought to do this. And he says, yes, you're excited. You've been planning this for a long time. You've been thinking about this. Most likely, you've been bringing this before the Lord. Is this okay? Is this something I can do? Then you get the yes from the man you need to get the yes from, and you're excited. And then he comes back the next day and tells you that dream, and there's only one way to understand that dream. God said, no. What's your reaction? Frustration, maybe anger, confusion. To me, all of that settles into disappointment. Disappointment is rooted in unmet expectations. That happens in person-to-person relationships. It happens in our relationship with the Lord. Whether the expectations are reasonable or not doesn't matter. Actually, it doesn't even matter if the expectations are explicit or unwritten. Some of you have an unwritten expectation that if you're sick and in the hospital, I'm going to come visit you. You'll never tell me that, but that's an unwritten expectation. And if I don't, you're not going to be happy with me. You're going to be disappointed that your pastor did not come see you in the hospital. You might not tell me you're in the hospital. Somehow I'm supposed to figure that out. But... The expectation is, hey, I'm in the hospital. Isn't there some, you got to get there. And if I don't, you're going to be disappointed. Same, it, it doesn't matter whether you communicate that to me or not. That's how it is in our relationships with, with each other. That's how it is in our relationship with the Lord. There, we have expectations of God, I think, that we never make explicit. I think this is where disappointment and suffering are connected. We're disappointed when God doesn't act in ways that we think he should whether we say it explicitly or not, whether it's a matter of conscious prayer or just something that we feel is right, when we don't see God acting the way he should, a lot of times that is one of the things that we're, we're suffering. God, you can fix it. You're not fixing it, which leads to disappointment for us. He hasn't met our expectation. And unless we figure out how to deal with that disappointment, when God says no, we're going to wind up getting shipwrecked in our faith. Ultimately, that disappointment, again, it, it becomes an offense that we carry forward with God, and over time, it slowly chokes off his life coming in to our life. First Chronicles 28, 2 through 3 says this, King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, this is his last kind of public speech before he dies, listen to me, my brothers and my people, I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. So there you got David's intention. This is my heart. Listen to what God said to him. But God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you're a warrior and you have shed blood. Listen to why God says no. This is pre-Bathsheba. This has nothing to do with sin. 
This has nothing to do with David's character, nothing to do with his relationship with God, nothing to do with his obedience, nothing to do with, again, time, resources, none of that. The reason God says no is because, David, you're a warrior and you have shed much blood. You know why David was a warrior and shed much blood? Because that was his deal. He was being obedient. Read through 1 and 2 Samuel. The wars David fought, he fought in the name of God. He fought in obedience to doing his thing. His thing was to be the shepherd of the people of Israel, and shepherds protect their people. He had to fight. There's no indication of the, in the wars that David fought that he ever was doing it out of arrogance, that he was selfish, that he was bloodthirsty. If anything, the story we read last week about Bathsheba was he was conservative with his people. He kept them back. He did things like setting up sieges that didn't cause his people to die. It was just, it was a, once the resources run out, they're going to surrender, and that way no one has to die. That seems to be David's M.O. Not that he's this bloodthirsty hyper-violent king. But his obedience to his deal kept him from his heart's desire. That's, let that sink in. That can be you and me. Hebrews 12, we have a race to run. I can't run your race. You can't run my race. And it very well could be, it is, that in running your race, you're going to have to pass by some alternate routes that may be very good, that might stir your heart in some very deep ways. But it's not the path that God has created for you. You're going to have to run past those. Difficult to do. Was it the right time? No, it wasn't the right time. Was, that, was it God's priority at this point? Not yet. He had some other things that he was doing first. But ultimately, it got down to the thing that was in David's heart wasn't in God's heart for David. And so he said, no. So you're God. You're a loving Heavenly Father. And one of your children comes to you and says, man, I got this great idea. You've done all this for me. You have took me from being a shepherd boy to being the king of Israel. You've given me victory over all of our enemies. Our territory has been expanded. It's, our, the nation is bigger than it's ever been. Everything I've done, I've had success. I want to build you a temple to honor you, to thank you because you deserve it. Your son comes to you and says that. How do you respond? For most of us, when God says no, what we hear is, you're an idiot. It's a stupid idea. What in the world makes you think that I would want you to do something like that? Get out of here. That's not how he says no. He says, that's a great idea but let's do this instead. You want to build a house for me, how about I build a house for you? You want to create a temple for me, why don't I create a dynasty for you? We can worry about the temple later. That's, a, that's wonderful that you want to do that, David. I've got a better plan for you. The no is always in the context of a bigger yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of God's promises, every promise you can find in here is yes in Christ Jesus. He says no, but it's a provisional no in service of a grander, greater, final yes. It's, this is the race for you to run, David. Building a temple is awesome. It's a diversion for you. It's a detour. We're not going to do that. I'm going to keep you on this road. 
because you've got to finish the race that I've created for you. Same thing for us. Sometimes we think, God, this would be awesome if you fill in the blank. Sometimes it's arrogance, let's do great things for God. But a lot of times it's genuine. It's stuff that's in our heart. It's needs that we see, and we can meet them. We've got the ability, we've got the resources, we've got the time, we have the desire. Why in the world would we not step in? And what you very well could hear, not no period, but no comma. Let's do this instead. This is what I have for you instead. That's great that you want to give yourself here. That's great that you want to move in this direction. That's great that you want to try this thing out. Let's not do that right now. Let's do this instead. The response. David's response. I'm just going to skim this. From verse 18 to verse 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. That's the response. When God tells you no, you need to go and sit before him. And he said, who am I, O sovereign Lord? We're going to count O sovereign Lords. O sovereign Lord one. In verse 19, as it is, they were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord number two. You see, O sovereign Lord, again at the end of that verse. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you've done this great thing. Verse 22, how great are you, O sovereign Lord? There's no one like you and there's no God but you. Verse 27, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you've revealed this to your servant, this plan, saying, I'll build a house for you so your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, that's number six. You are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, that's number seven, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. That's the response. You go and sit before the Lord with an attitude that says, you're the sovereign Lord. Seven times in one prayer. That's the heart position when God tells you no. You can throw a little temper tantrum if you need to, but then you've got to get over it and say, God is sovereign. He's, he's calling the shots here. He's got this thing. He can see the end from the beginning. I can't. He can see around the corner. I can't. He's got the days numbered. I don't. He's the one that's laid out the race. I'm just running it. I can't see the course, but he's the one that's laid it out. So there has to be this recognition in our hearts of submission that says, O sovereign Lord, if you say no, then I'm, I'm going with that. I'm not going to take the detour. I'm going to stay on the course. Paul in Philippians 4 says he's learned the, the, the secret of being content in all circumstances, whether he's hungry or thirsty, whether he's got food, whether he's rich, whether he's poor. He says the, it's recognizing his union with Christ, being connected to Jesus. The opposite of disappointment is contentment. If you can get there, that when God says no, what you do with that disappointment is you choose contentment instead. That's, O oh, sovereign Lord. It's not necessarily what I wanted, but I'm going to choose to be content with what I've got. I'm going to be content. I'm going to choose to be content with the race that you've given me. I want to run to the right. I'm going to stay straight. And I'm going to choose to be content with that. I'm going to choose to be content with the fact that your no is provisional and your yes is permanent. Whatever that looks like for you, 
if you can begin to make the choice to be content when God says no, that's how you deal with disappointment. With suffering, we said you just hang in there. You remain faithful and you hang in there. Disappointment is a little different. It takes a little more. You're not just hanging in there. You're choosing to be content. It's a recognition that God makes better choices than us. So it's not resignation, well, I guess I'll never get to build the temple. It's saying, no, this, look at what God has done for me. This is better than this. You building me a dynasty is better than me building you a temple. And I'm going to choose to say yes to that. Now, ultimately, where does that dynasty lead? It leads to Jesus. Absolutely, it's a better thing. We don't get to see that far in advance with our own life. So you're back here. You just ran into the tree, and you're disappointed. Will you choose to be content? You won't feel content. You might be fired up, confused, hurt, whatever. But in the midst of that, if you'll choose to say, you know what? Oh, sovereign Lord, I wanted you to say yes. You said no. I'm going to go with you on this and trust that the race that you've laid out for me is better than the detour I was going to take. Interesting to me. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know who wrote that? David. Doesn't look like he got the desires of his heart, does it? And yet he wrote that. We don't know when, but he wrote it. He didn't go back and pull it out later. There's something to be said for recognizing God's sovereignty over these things. And our position is we're, we're following as best we can. And there are things in our heart that are good and right and that we need to go for, and he's going to say yes. And there are things in our heart that are good and right, and we're going to go for him, and he's going to say no. And when he says no, it doesn't mean the desire was wrong. It just means it wasn't for us. Because the race I'm running, I, that's a detour. And in, that, in those moments, I have to choose to be content. I have to choose to delight myself in him and trust that somehow he's going to give me the desires of my heart. I don't know if that means God changed David's desires, it transformed them in some way, or if he just got to the point where he was willing to say, he's giving me the desires of my heart through my son, Solomon, who's going to do this. And this is how I can be involved. I don't know. There's no indication of that. But there, every indication is that David had learned to be content. He recognized that the no wasn't a final no. It was just a provisional no to keep him on the road that God had for him. We're going to close um, with ministry and worship. This is what I want you to do. Um, we're going to let this row be an altar. So uh, we're going to 